Well, welcome to The Journey. Um, my name is Kevin Polke, and I am the host of The Journey. And uh, we are uh, very fortunate today to have uh, a friend of mine. We go back to the, oh goodness, to at least to the early 90s when we first yeah. met and, and worked together for a while. We have Dr. Uh, Terrence Lichtenwald with us today. And so uh, his background is, uh, is from a clinical psychologist to a school psychologist, and then also uh, was trained as a forensic psychologist so a wealth of uh of, of experiences as well as uh, scenarios that you've been you're now uh retired and uh in 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 a in your uh as you've described it to me your uh sanctuary up in up in northern wisconsin so uh mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Lichtenwald Terry, it's uh, great to have you on the show. It's always great when we have conversations. And so welcome to the journey. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um... So whenever we start, I always ask uh, our guests to just maybe share what what do you, when you have an opportunity to have fun, what's what's fun? What do you do uh, with some spare time? What do you do to have fun? Well, i preparing for our chat today. I spent time talking with my wife. Um, and really, one, one of the things I did to have fun was reduce my stress all the way through a big section of my journey. And the way that was done was I was trained to uh, over and over until they became uh, behaviors to uh, always do certain things uh, because of the risk of the job I was in, um, and I did that. I I was um, really um, impressed with a group of individuals when I went to work for the government that had clear priorities, and they it was God, uh, country, family, and that, that those were their priorities, and they and they were very. Uh, mission or assignment orientated. So when you work, you work. You are 100% focused, working uh, on a team or your assignment. And when you're not working, then you're not working. But when you're working, there's, which is so radically different than what I found in the civilian world when I transitioned back, is that so much of the time in the workplace is spent um, not mission oriented, not focused. Uh, you know, it's it's better to be with a group of people that are in a that work in a hostile environment uh, and are serious and focused and have fidelity, integrity, honor. Uh, it's just less stressful. Uh, and the way they, it's for me, I mean, you smile, I know, because, you know, we've talked over the years and I just find, uh, I would rather be with uh, what they call special operation response team members uh, or uh, certain federal law enforcement uh, agents or uh, officers is less stressful than being with a school principal. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's so interesting. And you and I have shared cases, you know, over the years and talked about cases. And I have some individuals that have high levels of anxiety under normal circumstances. But one of their ways of coping with their anxiety is to do high risk activities, you know, rock climbing, 
you know, uh, bungee jumping, parachuting, you know, high, high risk activities that forces them, right, snowboarding, that forces them to be 100% in tune. And there's no room for what if and worry and anxiety, because they're 100% focused on that, that activity that requires all their attention. And so that reminds me of what what you were just saying is that the greater the external risk, the more that we are forced then to, um, you know, know what our assignment is, know what know who our teammates are, know what they're doing, and then and then lean into that and everything else was extraneous. Yes, I remember um, part of my training, there were main components. Uh, one was the weapons program, the weapons, firearms, and I had to be proficient in uh, rifle, pistol, shotgun, on a federal course. Um, and I was coming in as a Wisconsin kid with a hunter safety background. And that's that's not what we're doing. And so, and then when I went into my other training, uh, I had to go with these the, the SORT team members. And part of the program, you have to be able to get out of buildings different ways. And one of them is uh, they had a, a rappelling tower. You have to run up these steps and they're the steps the size of like in a building. And you run up and then you get on the top, you clip on, and you have to throw yourself off the roof. And this tower was built way up in 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 and was four or five stories tall. So I remember telling the uh, instructor on the tower, you know, breathing. I was really in shape then because I had to work out. You you work out, you your workout is how what your job is. So that's different than, but I told him, this is really great. This is going to raise my self-esteem. This is excellent. And the guy, a big, long cursing. They, those boy, those guys can curse too. Like, you know, one, two, like at least five or six curse words in a thing. And tell me, get off his tower. And so I had to rappel off the tower, which is like going down the side of a building. And the trick is there's cutouts where windows are. And, and I have so many seconds to get clear, get down. They have a, a team member there, get clear of the building and then go about my job. Um, but I, I remember thinking, well, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this. I can now, because uh, I have responsibilities, but if it's time to split and I got to split via roof, then I can do this. Um, and then I saw the team members uh, doing it. They go head first down the tower so they can have their guns going through the window, you know, look, they can look down upside down with their head facing the ground way up. And I thought, you know, every time I think I'm doing okay, then a team member shows me uh, their skill set. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm like, well, not bad for the psychologist. I'm doing okay for a psychologist, you know, <laughs> behavioral science specialist. I'm doing there you go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, there was something about that. There was something about um, they go, this is this is just a job. This is what we do. Yeah. No, don't. You know, we don't make policy. You know, we 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 treat others, inmates. They have prisoner code of conduct, the John McCain code of conduct of how it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. What the, what you mean by that? For the our listener may not um, know what that means. Uh, in the TV movies, you always have 
uh, these examples of like in prisons or something, you have uh, correctional officers beating people up or torturing. That is unacceptable. That will cause a problem. It has caused a problem. I think some of the material you've seen that uh, uh, research was with uh, Phil Zimbardo, the Stanford prison study. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about that is when he went to shut it down, he had a hard time getting the people that were selected to be guards to stop being abusive. Then uh, at the federal level, we had the Cuban crisis and what happened there in the prison system. And then we had uh, Abu Ghraib in the Middle East. And so you definitely, when whenever you have a correctional officer, uh, who is shaming or humiliating another staff member or a detainee, not even an inmate, a detainee. Someone is just being held there. Uh, then the security of the, your, your, your loyalty is always security of the institution, uh, security and assist to your teammate, and then finally to yourself. That, that, that is a straight, everything is very organized. The other, the other thing I liked about those guys is they always had clipboards. Everything's on a clipboard. Any problem you could possibly have, they have a policy procedure on a clipboard. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, they've, and they've been through it. They've been around the world. They've served, and the, many of them were professional uh, military and served. And you know, and there's just a certain way, I, and I incorporated that into myself. Sure. I, I thought, you know what? This is right. Before I go into work, I should look around. Uh, I still pray twice a day. Um, and I remember telling the team when, the, when, when after I got hired, the, the, how you get hired is really um, different. But um, well, I had trained at, what's that? No, just right before you go there, just for some of our listeners, they may not have known when you first started in school, when you were young, when you were a teenager, you weren't necessarily interested in forensics. No. And, and so you were interested maybe in helping people, but not necessarily in forensics. So maybe tell us a little bit about that, because because um, we have a lot I, of listeners that, that may not know how this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, um, I'm from Wisconsin, and I started dating a young woman. And she went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I, like many of the people in the part of this, where, where I come from, I was interested in zoology. Everybody wants to be a ranger up here. So, you know, and why not live your life tracking bears or whatever, you know? <laughs> so uh, I was in the BioCore program at Madison. And because of the way it was, I had to work. I had to do work study. So uh, that's mainly you take zoology, biology, chemistry. And I was lucky enough to get a research, student research position in uh, neurosurgery, ophthalmology, neurosurgery and oncology. Another one was in ophthalmology. Uh, and, and I was acknowledged in that research article about ultraviolet radiation affecting molecular uh, with DNA, anyways. Um, and my last place was at the Weissman Center, which is an institute you probably may have heard of it for mm -hmm. they do the research. And that was on EEG, uh, 
brainwave patterns of uh, infants while you were giving them the Bailey uh, scale of infant development. And I thought humans, by then I had worked with monkeys, baboons, dogs. I'd drawn blood, you know, lab study. And I knew I wasn't going to, I didn't want to get my doctorate and try to survive on a grant. Uh, I, I was, and, and, and I like people. So I thought, um, so I switched from the BioCore program and graduated with my degree in uh, broad, what they call broadfield social studies. So it was sociology, anthropology, geography, and psychology. And I was thinking about what to do. Um, I still had accrued enough credits to apply to dental school. But when I heard the dentist come and talk, it was like, oh, no way. I'm not that, no. That's not, <laughs> nope. Nope. And spit, you know, back in the day. So, nope. Uh, so I took a year off and taught in Milwaukee at a residential school and talked to the people that I knew at Madison. And they said, you know, why don't you become a school psychologist? You can work with kids and uh, you'll find the program that hard. So I applied to UW-Whitewater. They had recommended Whitewater for being a good education school. Um, so I went there. I had my 30, oh, while I was at Madison in the neurosurgery, the surgeons and the researchers uh, gave me money, uh, not me personally, but they had money because I was able to do the go and do the computer to score the research, to make the graphs, get the data analysis. So at like 2.30 in the morning, I'm down at the mainframe computer. And that's where I met, and this is a pivotal point, all the data scientists and engineers, mathematicians. And I got to hang out with them while they were waiting for time on the mainframe. And so I started learning to code, write computer code a little bit. So then when I went to Whitewater, I also had a research position working on writing uh, for the mainframe computer to score an IQ test. So I, I had my, my master's, my 30 credits, and then you do a written exam, then 30 more credits, the practicums, internship in Fort Atkinson. Uh, and I liked it. Uh, what I would do, that's up by Wisconsin Dells, I, yep. You know, I'm such a typical Wisconsin person. Okay, now here's, but yeah, every I think <laughs> you know they know Wisconsin Dells. They should. A lot of people know where Wisconsin Dells are. Anyways, so um, and the psychiatrist would come once a month, and he was from uh, Madison, and there were like I say, medically fragile kids that were going to the Mayo Clinic, and they had some information about for helping these kids that I didn't understand, so I called the Mayo Clinic, and sure enough. The MDs, the, the team leader for this child calls me back to help me understand what their thinking would be best for the medically fragile handicapped student. Um, and so that's how I started getting connections. And they're like, you know, have you thought about going to grad school? Like, you know, I already had. My, I was like, no. And then Madison was pushing and they go, well, why don't you just, why don't you just go? get your doctorate in clinical psych and come back and uh, and you don't mind living up north so you can 
up north is fantastic to visit. My my wife is so proud she just wintered over here. You know, so she went all winter here. Uh, but if you're not from here, baby, oh yeah. Things you gotta know uh, or experience. Um, yeah. But anyway, so the idea was uh, I took another year as a school psychologist. I studied for my GRE. Um, I take your graduate record exam, the Miller analogy test, and all that stuff. Took all these different tests, uh, applied to school, and you only go to school where you get in. Uh, I'm sure I did not get in at a lot of places. The only places I got in was Wisconsin, um, Baylor in Texas, and Fresno, uh, California. Um, and what was excellent about the Fresno program was that it was a clinical program, PsyD, but set up so I could earn a PhD. Mm. I just had to do everything a PsyD student would do, all the hours, all the practicums, internships, all of that. And in addition, I would be given an opportunity to take additional math classes, research design, and do a uh, dissertation. And then... I would be pretty sure I'd be able to get a job. Because if, if 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 all else fails, you can go to a university and uh, teach intro to psych. You know? yep. Yep. That's yep. what I thought. A PhD is, my professor always said, a PhD is just a, a union card. Yeah. So that yep. you can go to work. That's all it is. Hmm. Just, you know, that you did, like a bricklayer, you did these many projects, here's your workbook, you're good to go. And so, um, so uh, what happened was when I went to California, I went to Fresno, I had been guaranteed a, uh, a scholarship. That's the other reason I went to Fresno. I have an identical twin brother. And in Wisconsin, they thought if one of us could get accepted out of state, uh, they should go. My twin brother had a child, I didn't. So, and Fresno, the California School of Professional Psychology in Fresno offered me a scholarship. So, so it looked go. like Fresno. So I bought a Beach Boy tape, and which is Fresno's nowhere near the ocean. And so <laughs> off to Fresno I went. Uh, and a turning point in our life, like you've talked about so many times, what you think might be bad. When I got to Fresno, my first few days there, they called me in and told me my scholarship had been canceled. Uh, and it was canceled. It was canceled because I'm white. And I was like, oh, you know, where I come from, okay, I guess. Uh, and they said, but don't you worry, you can take out heel loans. And I thought, oh, I didn't know I would qualify. Oh, yeah, it's just like medical school. You can take out heel loans. Of course, it was about, I'm pretty sure I asked Chris, my wife, maybe about 10% or higher interest compounded on the semester you took it out. And so um, I said, okay, they had a deal. None of my master's work would be accepted because it was education. All of the school site would be erased. Uh, but I could take final exams. And if I pass the final exam in the class that they teach, then okay, maybe, then maybe I pass it. Plus I would have to rewrite my master's, uh, take the master's written exam. I think it was like, six days, you write every day for six days. If I pass that, well then, okay, then they'll maybe let me have my master's. 
Um, meanwhile, I had to do two practicums at the same time. I had to repeat the child and adolescent because that was done in schools. Uh, and I had to do the adult. And that was really good because uh, I was at Fresno Community Hospital. And the psychiatrist was the old time, the kind of psychiatrist you and I, I think we both loved, but well-rounded. I mean, this guy played the cello. He was brilliant. Dr. Victor was, just, was excellent. And he said, you are going to do uh, this many months uh, in surgical, with surgical patients, this many months with uh, pediatric infectious diseases. Uh, you are going to go to the emergency room. And you're going to learn how to give a mental status exam and tell and to be able to tell the psychiatric resident if the person has any clue what their name is, where they are, if they can remember three things after you. And and um, what a great years, great year. Uh, I was able to be there when we detoxed people. So you would come in and you had a horrible drug addiction and be there while the physician hooked you up to the IVs. I was with you, I experienced it. I, that's how you learn, you know? And, and Dr. Victor always said, that, don't drink, remember boys, don't, on the psych unit, don't drink the orange juice. That's a really important thing you gotta learn. All these little <laughs> things. And see, of course, you know that stuff, because you you and I saw each other in the hospital a lot of time. Well, that's what he puts the Thorazine in. All right, well, good to know. <laughs> don't don't be sipping on the on the orange juice, baby. No. Yeah, <laughs> we'll know. Was, we'll we'll know if you did. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And so uh, at Fresno, uh, I had the grades. I had the grades. They had a program that you could flex for your last year. You could leave. Uh, as it had to be an APA approved clinical psych. Uh, internship, and I applied. I was very excited. I applied to VA hospitals in the Midwest. I, on my father's side, on my uncles had served in the military, uh, World War II, uh, Korea. My older cousins had served in Vietnam. So, uh, and I remember there was a teacher, a special ed teacher that my wife worked with, and I was very excited. I told him. I've been accepted for an interview at, at Westside VA in Chicago, which I thought would be great. And North Chicago VA by the Naval base, I thought that'd be great. And this guy laughed all the time and he can't, he says to me, he says, I'm like, you ever been to a VA hospital? I said, no, no. I said, all right. And uh, it turned out, um, I learned later, he had been in Vietnam, shot down twice, and he had uh, been with a, um, the, the, the ones where they have the eagle on the patch. And so uh, Lance, I really liked him a lot. He was really supportive. Um, but so then I, I did my internship at the VA in Chicago and with wounded veterans that were missing limbs and the nerves would still fire. So I learned biofeedback, hypnosis, all the basic I was always interested, you know, the nervous system uh, stuff. Um, and then I was put in a, a group, a combat group for a year. Uh, I didn't I didn't think much of PTSD then. I was really 
interested in it, you know, but they were uh, the, getting into the group is easy. Like so many, my journey has been so, all they asked me is if, uh, if I knew who uh, Jane Fonda was. And I said, yeah, she was an older lady, kind of hot in workout videos and a couple other things. And they said, okay, well, sit down and shut up. And <laughs> I was in the group and uh, I saw a lot of it, you know, cancer was everywhere, uh, you know, with the beds. Um, uh, I was there when guys were getting artificial limbs, working with how that nervous is. And then they go golfing. And one of the things they would do is, that's uh, crazy, but they, they shoot the golf balls to hit the the naval base barracks where the, where the kids are, oh man. So I always ask the, you know, if could the combat veterans have lost an arm stop swinging the golf clubs and dropping the balls over on the, on the Navy. Um, <laughs> so anyways, I, I like those guys a lot. I, the vets were very good to me. I was there when men died. I got to stay with them right while they died. So, so with all these educational experiences that you had, and I, and I appreciate, you know, for our listeners to be able, because my, my journey was very similar. I mean, not, not similar from the aspect of, I knew that I wanted to work with people. I knew that I wanted to help people, but I had no idea after that, really, you know, I was a competitive athlete that now was looking at the, the mental, emotional part of the game instead of just the physical part of the game. And in, and it literally was like, not knowing where this journey was, you know, for me starting out in the, in the fitness world and then going to corrections and then into the psych hospital at Oakwood hospital and, and the you know, and working addiction and all that part of it. Um, I, I didn't have really much. Uh, I, I knew the direction I wanted to go in, but it was not at all defined, you know, meaning, meaning I, I wanted a job, wanted to pay off, you know, any level of debt that I had at the time and, and just wanted to work with people. Right. I mean, that was about as much as I, yeah. you know, as much as I knew. Right. And, and, and so I, I think that is like, when I think of younger people that ask me about, well, what should I do? And I suggest to them, are you a people person or a thing person? And if you're a people person, then you need to be doing something along that line, or you're going to grow bored working on things mm -hmm. and, and the other way around. Right. And so, so as you're on this journey, uh, you know, when you and I were talking, a piece that came into it was this whole element that people don't understand at all, except on nine o'clock TV, you know, some kind of series or whatever was this idea of forensic psychology. And, and so tell us a little bit about that. And then I, and I wanted to jump into the idea of the element that that led to you working with the white collar crime piece of it. And then, and then how that, you know, the, the negative side of that. So go, go ahead. Well, one of the things that uh, after the work at the VA hospital, I, then in clinical psych, you have to do yet another year, the postdoc year. And mine was in internal medicine uh, in Barrington, Illinois, which at night, when the doctors show the place to you, it looks kind of like Wisconsin. In the daylight, it's obviously not Wisconsin. I don't think there's an old F-150 pickup truck in the joint, you know? Everything is like decked out, super nice, no gun rack you know, Barrington style. So 
I was working there. And when I was in school back in California, that's why you, when you talk to students, you don't know when you think something is bad or it's going to be a problem, you don't know if it's a blessing or not. So the fact that my scholarship was canceled had, I was just trying to get by as fast as I could doing what I could. The students were very nice to me. I had never been to uh, like the gay and lesbians. Uh, the, the lesbians had a party and I was invited. And uh, back then I was really like, yeah, that was great. They even had a quarter barrel of beer, Kevin. And I was like, oh my God, they didn't even know, they know what these cups are. They had the cups, they had the whole deal. And they weren't being like mean. It was just like, yeah. And I'm, and I'm drinking this beer. I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. This is great. Um, and then my wife pointed out to me, did you, have you noticed anything? I thought, no, the beer is tapped, right? It's cold. We got the cups. Life is good. I can't imagine what else there could be. She said, you're the only guy here. I was like, what? Go, yeah, they, this. And so, and then the, the gay guys had a party and they had um, uh, finger sandwiches and stuff. They really do it nice. And they had their finger sandwiches and everything. And I was invited to go to the gay parade uh, in, uh, I don't know, San Francisco or something. And I didn't go. I, I didn't have the money. I had work. I didn't go. That's one of my big regrets. I should have. I should have. And then before I left California, they, they took me surfing. They took me hang gliding because they're sure once you go back to the Midwest, you die, you know? And I'm like, so they, I got the whole, but what happened in my postdoc was uh, one of the professors who supposedly nowadays, I guess would be minority. I never saw him, but called me. And my daughter had been born, uh, you know, with a birth defect. And needed surgery, and I was on. I was going on uh, public aid. I didn't have a job, and I was trying to get a job, and Chris didn't have a job, and he called me and said, "Look, call this number, and tell these people that uh, you're interested in coming in for an interview." So I said, "Okay." Is it is it a job? He's like, "Yeah, it's a job." It has you know, health insurance, all that. So I called this number. And it's in downtown Chicago. Weird interview. Weirdest job interview you're ever going to have. They, they take a chest x-ray. They uh, You have to you pee in a cup. I think they took blood. Uh, they asked me some questions that I, I didn't even make sense at the time. And they give you a big packet to fill out. Everybody you know that's ever been outside the United States. And everything all about yourself. And so my mom was still alive then so I could ask her uh, and then you, then you're told to go home go, then you go home with that fill it out send it in and then later uh, you get a call they get a you get an airplane ticket the airplane ticket is to go uh, just get on the airplane you're gonna go to this place you're gonna check into this hotel uh, next day you're gonna go to the lobby and this person's gonna meet you there and and you're gonna get in the car with this person and I'm like okay I can all of this stuff, even a guy from Wisconsin can do. You know, I can I can follow all of this. And so you get there and it's a really weird interview. Um, I was hoping I would get maybe to work in a prison in a hospital setting. 
Um, and they ask questions about basically what would it take for you to shoot somebody? Um, how would you handle hostage, uh, you know, hostage takers? In a hot, if you were in charge of, a, of resolving a hostage situation, what would you do? Uh, and my answer, you know, they, the psychologist, there's about 15 people in the room when you're interviewing and the, the front of the, those were the psychologists. I could tell they were not digging what I was saying, but there were a group of men in the back that were like, that's right. He's, that's a good idea. You should do that. You know, that's wrong, but it's a good idea. You're, you know, you know, I was going to do stuff to the food and they said, well, you can't do stuff to the food because they make the, the hostages eat the food first. I was like, yeah, but I was going to do a time delay. Man, I got skills. I was a I was a biocore major. I know about bacteria and I, you know, I was going to do it right. But um, and then you go home and you wait, and then they then you, and I got another call, and it was with the guy that would be a mentor in my life. He had he had been military, he had been in the Green Beret, had been a career soldier. Then he went into the Bureau of Prisons. He, he became a psychologist, and he'd be one of the uh, people that would help me. And then, so I went to work. You go where, you, just like grade school, you interview and hope you're going to get a nice office in a hospital, and you go where you go, and you go where that you go where they need you. Yeah, you know, you know, you know. I mean, the same thing in school. I always wanted to go to Paris. I didn't get to go to Paris. We all had to do out of country experiences. I was definitely not Paris. So, uh, you know, I, my, my country was not Paris. So in the, in that, and, and, and I, and thank you for the notes that you had sent me earlier. There's a clearly the training, um, the process to become a forensic psychologist versus a clinical psychologist who has an interest in forensics, two totally different things. Right. And, and then, and then, and then York's your piece of your experience was that um, uh, was that you ended up um, uh, spending time, uh, you know, working with white collar crime. And so maybe talk a little bit about for our listener, what is white collar crime? And then what did you learn about that? And then you, you were uh, recognized with an article that you published about, white collar crime turning red. And so maybe you can, if you could touch on those two things. Right. Um, so you wanted to know uh, what happens is after you complete all your training as a, a clinical psychologist, so now uh, a good additional seven years of your life are gone. So you're up to about 12 years in college and training. Then they send you to school. To, uh, I, they send to, I was sent to a federal law enforcement training center uh, in Georgia. And most of your classmates were military. In fact, I think I, including the women. So I was probably the only one in my class that was not proficient in stripping down, cleaning, and putting back uh, together a firearm uh, while they're timing you. We don't do that in hunter safety. We have a cup of coffee, maybe a sandwich, but we're not, this is no, this is not any, you know. And then the policies, procedures, 
guidelines, uh, like I say, weapons, uh, hostage survival training. That's important. Uh, you got to learn these skills because your job isn't going to be like TV, like what you're talking about. Your job is you're going to go and spend time with these people. You're you're going to read uh, all about them. You're going to read all the police reports. You're going to watch their interrogations. You're going to watch their videos. You're going to uh, listen to their telephone conversations. You're going to read their mail. And you're going to spend time with them. And some of these people um, are extremely um, violent, vicious. I mean, I spent a lot of time with, um, back then they used to call them narco-terrorists. And then regular type terrorists, there's a difference. Uh, abductors, kidnappers, unlawful restraint, bank robbers, arsonists. That's what you're doing. And then I was assigned to have to spend time at Camp Fed. And what happens is these, these highly, highly manipulative, emotionally callous towards other people uh, show up. Uh, and some actually bring luggage. It's shocking. They bring luggage, not just any luggage, not like luggage you and I would get from Walmart or something. This stuff <laughs> is decked out with a, some la-di-da name on it, you know? I'm like, yeah. all right. And then I got to do your mental status exam to make sure you don't have institutional shock. I mean, you got people that come with tennis rackets. So, and you read about them and I'm like, you are a scumbag, worthless you destroy. There were hardworking men and women in this country, and you raped their pension. Now they're going to have trouble getting co-pays for their Medicare, getting the medicines they need, uh, housing, uh, and you spent it on uh, drugs, women. You like that one infamous guy gave himself an award for being like a wrestler. He ripped off an honor pen, pin from an honor society and was tooling around. He wasn't even in that society. Like an act, I mean, like, you know, and then he was always manipulating other people. That's what they're like. Like I, like I know I've shared with you, if you, if you take the, the, Hunter pedophiles that go for children to exploit them uh, for their own personal, financial, emotional, uh, sexual gratification. They hunt kids. And say that's in one circle here. We'll here, like here. And then you take the white-collar criminals here, and you put those two circles, and you see how much of it overlaps or not. I'd say at least like 68% of it overlaps. And that's the myth of the white collar criminal. So many judges and people, you know, and the, and the, the criminal will just tell you, well, you know, he he's not here to uh, address that. So, yeah, you know, it's you know? so, so it's, it's interesting. And I know you and I, you know, with, with, with my background, when I first came on, when we first met was with the uh, criminal thinking model, the irresponsible thinking model with Samuelson, right. Samuelson and Yogelson. So where right. that helped me be able to look at individuals, regardless of if it was a dictator, 
addictive thinking model or criminal thinking model is that it had less to do with the be the behavior was just a symptom to reflect what their thinking was and yeah. and that that they may not have used not that they wouldn't but they may not have used uh, a weapon such as like a, a firearm to commit the crime but they're thinking about wanting to utilize use people to get uh, whatever they wanted achieved was very similar. Yeah, I think one of the things is they want to hurt people. They enjoy taking your money is great because then they can spend it on drugs and women and uh, cars and houseboats, whatever. But hurting you is is a, a big plus for them. They dig it. They like it. They. They're so weak and cowardly that they feel they're in control and dominating you by hurting you. So the money is a way to, it is like a knife to your heart. And that's what they're doing. And they, and they, uh, and then they get away with it. Uh, so many times people go, well, you know, and that you're right. And the people you were talking about, they're uh, Frank Perry who is really the, the main man on this research. Uh, I think he just wrote uh, part of a review or a section for Seminole on his new book. Mm. And he knows Har from Har's uh, work. Um, on the yeah. psychopath, the snakes and suits and all that. So I think, you know, for, for our, you know, for, for our listener, part of the reason why I wanted to have you come on is is one, not only be we've been friends for a long time and and I've always you know your your the conversations we've always had, you know, have always been fascinating just because of your layer of experience as well as expertise. But you also have a way of being able to say, yeah, this person is what you would stereotypically say as, as a as a bad guy or a thug. And this guy happens to be in a $5,000 suit, mm -hmm. but they think the same. Or, think or the maybe same, they behave the same. I learned, and you're absolutely right, I, I learned such a huge difference between criminals and psychopaths. The number of times that criminals have helped me out, they're criminals. That's their business. But they have rules. I, I remember when a group of bank robbers were complaining about another group of bank robbers. And I was like, do tell. And they were like, yeah, you go in, you rob the bank. That's your job. You, you, That's what you do. But if you go in and rob a bank and you take some lady or a kid that's a teller, you grab them by the hair, you smack them with the gun, you do any of that, don't call yourself a bank robber. That's not bank robbing. What you're doing, yeah, you're in the bank, but there's something else going on because bank robbers are about the money. Remember there's that famous bank robber, they asked him why did he rob banks? And everybody was hoping he'd blame his mother or something. And he said, well, that's where the money is. And then he spent the rest of his career trying to get out of that. Well. <laughs> You're absolutely right. The, the 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 guys in the suit are as vicious as psychopaths, antisocial, you know, and some criminals are psychopaths, some are quite antisocial, 
but some for, as you what you talk about, for a variety of reasons, they got caught early on. Their friend didn't get caught. And so they ended up in the system. Their friend did not. The, it's, the, it's amazing how criminals have such clear vision on who belongs with them and who doesn't. And the distance they put on the people that uh, hurt women, children, uh, it's not necessary to get the money. Yeah. Either you're about the money or you've got something else going on. And white color criminals have something else going on. They're they're vicious, violent. They want to hurt you, mm-hmm. hurt you. You know. So so Terry, for uh, I I definitely think this conversation could go, you know, continue and and mm-hmm. I and and. Because I'd like what I'd like to do is I'd like to set up a time period for you to come back on and for us to talk a little bit more about that, because I think especially because, like you said, that misnomer, like, you know, we had this idea in our head, this myth in our head that that if if. I don't go to this part of town at this time of the day and and I lock my doors and, and those types of things, right? And I think that is that that we're we're cognizant of that and we're aware of that or whatever. But I don't really believe that the average person knows what to do or even be aware of someone regarding this. How do I know that this is a, a scam that's part of a white collar crime. How do I know that this is what's going on? And maybe at some point we could have you come back on and we can talk a little bit about what are some of those things that mm-hmm. we can be cognizant of, aware about what either how to avoid that situation or if I find myself beginning to be courted. And because it, like you said, just like a pedophile will court a victim the the white collar crime is a, it's a it's a courting process because right. they 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 get the person to to walk with them because no, they're probably not being forced to sign anything uh it's there's a there's a coercion that right. comes into it yeah they're gonna they're gonna slick you out of it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. no I, I i agree i i know you want to uh we didn't talk about the red collar case that really started the red collar research. Yeah. And that has to do with a case that Frank Perry had. Yeah. And I had to evaluate the criminal. And I had to repeat, come back and explain to Frank, you know, because serious lawyers want to have a client, they want to go to court, they have a code of conduct, they want to follow, and then they have these you're going to have a white collar criminal. And you're like, this guy is this, what? Yep. Every time it's a different story, you know? Yep. So what I'm thinking is, why don't we do this? Why don't we go ahead and end at this point? And then we will have you, if available, we'll have you on for the next episode. And we'll continue our discussion uh, regarding those couple of things. Okay. All right. Terry, as always, I, I always appreciate our conversations and uh, and there never seems to be enough enough time for us to have those conversations. And so thank you again uh, for that. And I will uh, we'll set it up for you to be on for the next episode. And um, and so okay. let me uh, 
So as, as always, I, I, I hope that you have found our conversation with Dr. Lichtenwald engaging, and, um, and I look forward to having you back next week so that we can continue this conversation with Dr. Lichtenwald and myself talking about um, the, the mindset and the thought process of the white-collar crime and then what we can do um, to protect ourselves and increase our awareness. As always, thank you for being here and look forward to being with you next week. Thank you.